I'm Christopher Leiden, reporting Pakistan Aslant. Part two of this story is the buzz of vitality that comes with all the anxiety about Pakistan. There's a fine line between them, a knife edge, and Pakistanis love to talk about living on it. This is open source from the Watson Institute at Brown University, an American conversation with global attitude, we call it, with Pakistanis this time, in the monsoon rains of summer 2011. I went out to an ancient fishing village in Karachi one afternoon, before I had figured out the no-go war zones of this city of 20 million people. Hadn't figured out why it was burning either. But with fishermen, I was safe taking a worker's measure of Pakistan's distress. This mouth of the Indus River is where Indian civilization and fishing began 5,000 and some years ago. Today it is beset by pollution, development, malicious destruction of the mangrove swamp where fish breed, also by an India-Pakistan border war. Fishermen do long prison time just for straying into the wrong water. In short, I was looking at what seems a hopelessly broken system, a parable of Pakistan, you could say. Yet these fishermen look young, robust, full of themselves, anything but hopeless. Muhammad Ali Shah is their serene, good-humored leader. Fish is declining uh, rapidly. Uh, this is a global problem, and uh, some international scientists also conducted the uh, scientific research. They warned that in 2048, the entire world sea will be empty from the fish. Hmm. So this is a uh, global problem. So same problem in Pakistan. Due to overfishing, Due to marine pollution, environment problem, uh, fishing by uh, industrial deep sea trawlers, 70% uh, fish stock of Pakistan uh, have been declined. So we are uh, working the rights of uh, fish workers of uh, Pakistan. Uh, we are mobilized and we are organizing them to protect uh, their rights, uh, protect their livelihood, raise the uh, voice uh, against the marine pollution, the destroying of uh, mangroves, the destruction of uh, Indus Delta. Uh, we are running the social movement against all these uh, issues. This is our resources. Yes. This is our seas. We are the uh, son of seas. Yes. We are the son of soil. Because uh, uh, sea our uh, uh, bowl of livelihood. Daily, 500 million gallon wastage of industrial Vestage municipal dump into the sea. Yes. Dump into our bowl of livelihood. The air about these men suggests solidarity, savvy, global awareness. They're posters of the resilience that Pakistanis seem to count as their last card. They will live, most of them, to see that doomsday date, 2048, when the last fish may be gone or maybe not. But no matter, they're busily forging anchors and fixing their nets for tomorrow. It's part of the parable that fishermen in Pakistan paint their boats the way teamsters paint their huge trucks with brilliant floral designs that make colorful splashes in their workplace at sunset. How many countries do we really know that could crater in our lifetimes or just as plausibly rise and shine? In Pakistan, I'm getting used to seeing anxiety and vitality, these colliding impressions, over and over. One day in my Karachi newspaper, the headline says, Deadly drone attacks kill 61 in 24 hours. These, of course, are the CIA's robot missiles that target Taliban fighters lurking in the tribal northwest of Pakistan. Pakistanis are never told exactly who got killed, and they don't believe they're all bad guys. This was also the day when we were to talk with one of Karachi's better-known television comics about what's funny in Pakistan and the limits on what's sayable. I asked Saad Haroon, can you make a joke about drones? Yikes. Um, I'd, I'll have to make a Raymond Davis joke or something <laughs> just to cover for it. There's no covering for something like that. When you have a statistic, it's tough for anyone to make a joke about that. I want to hear a Raymond Davis joke. Raymond Davis, of course, being... Yeah, oh, Raymond I, Davis, who is this kind of like who is kind of like a CIA contractor. So 
So not Macy. I, I I have this joke. The first joke I start out with with Raymond Davis. Davis is always that Raymond Davis is such a made up name. Do you know how I know Raymond Davis is such a made up CIA name? Because it's so easy for us to pronounce. You know, Raymond <laughs> Davis. You know, that cannot be. It's so easy for Pakistanis to pronounce. It cannot be. We can't pronounce America. We say America, but we can say Raymond <laughs> Davis. It must be a made up name. You know, I bet his real name was like Victor Versace or something like Victor Versus Victor Versus. I, Raymond Davis, you'll be Raymond Davis, you know, and that's uh, that's how it goes. Yeah, and, and you know, and you can't justify things like that. You know, you can't justify, um, you know, this this evil Rambo. We grew we grew up watching good Rambo. You know, this is what this is what Pakistanis grew up watching. They Pakistanis don't want to hate America. You know, I mean, I think a lot of times we try really really hard, you know, not to be angry or stuff like that. But then. How like if a Pakistani went on a shooting rampage in America and killed like, and killed people and then left and then got out and came back to Pakistan and was like whatever I'm free gonna live my life what would Americans think? What I'm learning is there's a stand-up comedy culture in Pakistan from village street corners right up to the raucous political chat and satire that is all over primetime television. There's even a Pakistani version of Dame Edna a cross-dressing TV host who built a career impersonating the late Prime Minister Benazir Bhutto and is still teasing politicians and the religious right. At the same time, a murderous shooting war on free speech is coming out of the deep state in Pakistan. It's one of those things I came to witness. Salman Tasir, the governor of the Punjab, had been killed by one of his own bodyguards last winter, all he'd done was voice some pretty common skepticism about a blunderbuss law against blaspheming the name of the Prophet Muhammad. And then in May this year, just weeks before I arrived, the reporter Salim Shahzad, Pakistan's version of Seymour Hersh, had been beaten, tortured, and tossed in a creek. By all accounts, including the Pentagon's, it was the Pakistani army's intelligence wing, the ISI, that killed Shahzad probably for documenting the brotherly bonds between the army and the Taliban. With 28 recent murders of reporters in Pakistan, nobody questions that this is the most dangerous place in the world to practice journalism, and still, reporters do it. The novelist Mohammed Hanif, who is also a BBC commentator, is my authority on the vitality in journalism here and the constraints. Well, I think a few things have happened. A, whatever you see, this 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 flowering of the arts, or or whatever you want to call it, uh, this is happening within a bubble, which is a very middle class, which is very very uh, mainstream. Uh, it doesn't really uh, uh, challenge kind of you know any of the any of the basic uh, paradigms of, of this uh, this society. Uh, it's also somehow uh, linked to the sort of mainstream commercial activity sponsored by you know either either multinationals or you know sort of bankrolled by uh, western funded uh, ngos so so most of it is uh, it is happening within as i said within a, within a bubble uh, but yes because of the technology uh, there is sometimes appears to be uh, a sense of kind of you know uh, freedom and a sense of being able to say whatever uh, you uh, want to say but as it has been proven again and again and again that it has uh, its own limits, as we've seen with, the, with, with Salim Shahzad. All the journalists based in Islamabad, if you're going to Islamabad, ask them, you know, sort of ask them off the record if they're reluctant. And 90% of them tell you that it has ISI written all over it, Salim Shahzad's murder. Like, you know, it's, it's the ISI. We have to prove that they haven't done it because they've, they've done these things exactly in the same style. Mohammed Hanif is describing what I call the Pervez Musharraf double standard for the general who seized the government a decade ago and signed on for George W. Bush's global war on terror, not a popular move in Pakistan, but then Musharraf also liberated the airwaves for all kinds of popular talk. The net of the Musharraf rule is that Pakistanis, especially of the English-speaking elite, feel entitled to say almost anything, but the Urdu language masses can expect to change almost nothing in a veiled military dictatorship that fronts openly for a feudal social hierarchy. Sadly, we are in a situation where, you know, sort of uh, there are certain institutions of the state, there are certain 
certain parts of the, uh, the establishment uh, which uh, cannot be uh, touched by anybody, be it the courts, be it the political parties, and or, or be it kind of you know even the media. The media knows uh, its its limits. It's it's very noisy. It's very boisterous. You kind of you know sit and watch it, and you say, "My God, they can talk about everything," but no, you're wrong. Uh, there are certain things that they cannot talk about. Within first minutes of Salman Taseer's murder, the biggest TV channels, their mainstream presenters were sitting there and saying that, oh, a murder is a bad thing, but blah, 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 blah. So it's not as simple uh, as uh, all of it, you know, sort of seems. Mohammed Hanif calls the cultural scene in Pakistan a bubble. But I wonder, it looks like a sturdy, brave bubble by now, expanded by Hanif's own satirical fiction and intrepid journalism. And it has strong links to the wider world, in Lahore, smaller city than Karachi, but the real cultural hub, the actress, artist, agitator, and ringleader in the arts, Salima Hashmi, suggested that the pressure on the cultural bubble is connected to the vitality inside it. It's odd that the worse things are, the better the art becomes. I suppose that is also something noticeable elsewhere. <laughs> we are told that, you know, in very difficult times of war, I think the human spirit or the resilience of creative people is challenged and therefore comes to the fore. Uh, that's happening here too. What most of us in America don't know is that Pakistan is a cultural powerhouse in South Asia and beyond. Fiction, poetry, not movies, but all kinds of music. Nusrat Fateh Ali Khan may have been the greatest Sufi singer ever recorded. He sang in a religious tradition and he was more popular than Elvis. Abida Parveen might be more nearly the Mahalia Jackson of Pakistan, and she is still a star the world over, including New York, even on Bollywood soundtracks. The varieties of Pakistani music run wide and deep. The rule of thumb seems to be that Pakistanis watch Bollywood movies from India, but that Indians sing and dance to Pakistani music, even on Bollywood soundtracks. Zeb and Hania, who have made it big in South Asia, also on public radio in America, are telling me a classic story of how traditional music in Pakistan gets made new. When we come back, this is Open Source from Pakistan. Christopher Leighton, and this is Open Source, looking at Pakistan, a slant. Zeb and Hania are the young Pakistani music stars, close cousins, almost sisters, who went to New England for their college educations, Smith and Mount Holyoke, and came back with a new sound. Some call it Urdu Blues, a new entry and a giant hit in world music. I'm sitting in their studio in Lahore, wondering how musicians who grew up on Sufi songs on Persian and Pashto repertoires can absorb so many chords and forms and rhythms of American music and still be embraced as authentic and thrilling back home, not to mention popular.
were songs that Zeb and Hania started writing and recording about 10 years ago just to ease the pain of feeling homesick and broke in Western Massachusetts. Inadvertently, they found themselves a network of passionate fans on the web, first among South Asian students all over North America, then with Pakistanis and Indians back home, then in the Gulf, then all over the listening and record-buying universe. So what is it, I'm asking them, that allows fusion to work so well in music when it's so hard to pull off in other public spaces? Here's Hania, the guitar and rhythm section in the duo. Sincerity. (laughs) (laughs) There's sincerity in music. There's very little ulterior motive. There's just the appreciation for everything that you're drawing, everything you're giving. There's mutual respect. Uh, I don't find any of these things in politics. I'm reminded of the all-star orchestra of young Arabs and Israelis that Daniel Barenboim and Edward Said organized. And I'm wondering about Zeb and Hania's models. Here's the lead singer, Zeb. Cultural exchange is a model, I feel, but like sincerely being able to um, appreciate, because the, any, any cultural form is kind of, it has all of one's values and you know, society, all of that is latent within any kind of real cultural expression. And so I think when one can connect to each other's cultures, one can actually connect to each other. In, and and the, the, like for instance, if you look at India and Pakistan, despite the fact that the two countries, you know, are daggers drawn and then sometimes they're trying to get together, whatever the politics of the region might be, you cannot run away from the fact that, you know, any time there is a, a, any musician that comes out in the Pakistani market, l- millions of Indians across the border will not only find out about them, but will appreciate them, go out of the way to, way to come onto their Facebook pages and mm. appreciate them and, you know, connect with them. Similarly, um, even in the worst of times, mm. there's, a, there's a film that comes uh, out in Bollywood and Pakistanis will be will will be out in throngs buying that DVD whether it's pirated whether they have to go watch it in in mm. in um, cinemas they want to connect that's because we have that cultural shared cultural uh, history all kinds of live music all of it at a high level was ingrained in Zebin Hania's home training our grandmother is actually she had the most beautiful voice uh, was um, loved singing and loved all art forms and she was kind of the matriarch of the family and when we'd go uh, meet her on, on Eid or for any other holidays she would make sure that we had some kind of live entertainment at nights mm-hmm. and a lot of times that ended up being a lot um, the Afghan musicians who had, had who were part of the refugee diaspora coming in in the early 80s so uh, we heard a lot of Afghan music a lot of uh, Pashto folk music. She was also, uh, since she was a poet, she loved ghazals. Um, and she also loved old, very old, sometimes pre-partition music from, um, you know, the the industry, the film industry, uh, Indian film, and a lot of Indian music as well. She used to sing very beautifully. So it was it was a, a wide range of music that we, we got to listen through her and through her, her influences. I asked them, how do they like being packaged at festivals as the girls from Pakistan? Well, we are. <laughs> Both. We're girls and we're Pakistani. Uh, I, I would have been quite bothered uh, with it about two, three years ago, hmm. um, which is the first time that this started happening. Uh, because initially we didn't expect to be the product. We thought the music would be the product, but that didn't happen. Uh, we were packaged and we were branded. You know, it, was, it was us that people wanted to put out there as opposed to the music. Um, but uh, over the past year or so, uh, I think I've personally begun to realize that it is important. Uh, and I, I really do believe uh, that uh, culture and art specifically is the solution hmm. to the mess that politics is creating. I think where politics dehumanizes, art has the completely opposite effect. 
And I think just by virtue of being there and by virtue of being on stage and saying what we say and doing what we do, uh, even if we don't specifically address the, the questions that are in people's minds, hmm. I think uh, we'll probably help uh, bring a little bit of change. In this game that I call Parachute Radio, the dream on landing in Pakistan was to say, take me to your talkers and be led to someone who remembered back to partition in 1947, who had lived the art and cultural politics and religion of Pakistan's whole history and could imagine his country 30 years into the unknown. The moment I stepped into Kamal Khan Mumtaz's modest, colorful house in Lahore, I felt this man and his architecture, this space he designed and built for his family, were all things I had dreamt or tried to imagine. The harmony of many rectangles in his rose-colored rugs and burnt sienna bricks, building blocks of the old British Lahore. There was harmony in the man, too, and in the greenery and the birdsong on the porch where we had two long visits and he took me through his version of a revival in Pakistan of Islamic thinking about art and design and meaning in life. For me, Kamal Khan Mumtaz was tracking two journeys of his own over the last 50-plus years, both west to east, one professional and artistic, the other personal and spiritual. And, of course, they're roughly parallel. This was a hurdle that I'd gradually became to identify more and more that here is a barrier I just can't get over. And um, finally the opening was provided for me by my sheikh, my mentor, my teacher, my spiritual guide, with whom I discussed this problem. the, the problem that the compulsion to do something which is of this time. Mm. And he said, well, whatever you do is of this time. Mm. And secondly, what is of this time? And of course, one immediately thinks of atom bombs and IT revolutions and technology, all these horrors of the modern age. Mm. And that really, for me, removed the last barrier. I recognized that what the barrier was, was my own ego. And once I'd understood that, then it's been relatively smoother sailing since then. In his student days in London in the 1950s, Kamal Khan Mumtaz was a modernist, after the examples of Mies van der Rohe and Frank Lloyd Wright. Le Corbusier, a heroic model at the time, had the dream assignment of designing Chandigarh, the new capital of the Indian Punjab, at Nehru's personal invitation. But what impressed young Mumtaz even more back home was how little he knew of the native tradition and the depths of the difference with the new. It's really a difference in worldview, he's telling me, a difference between the materialist modernism and the traditional ease with metaphysical and spiritual reality. What he learned over a hard journey writing the comprehensive history of architecture in Pakistan was the radical value of proportion and ideal forms and the practice of copying classical exemplars, just as important, he says, as innovation and invention. The modern buildings, and particularly postmodern buildings, are just... um enraptured by technology, man's ability to solve problems. It's it's all excitement. Mm. And encouraging us. They're like huge, big billboards saying, go on, go for it, have it. You, You deserve it. Spoil yourself. Get the latest model of this, that, and the other. It's consumerism. Whereas, uh, the traditional buildings, and invariably people who have uh, experienced our buildings, uh, one of the most common reactions is the sense of peace that they experience, calmness. Mm. So it suddenly sets you into a totally different dimension. Uh, you, you really, and you, if you would visit some of these buildings, just observe people walk in, and there's suddenly a hush and a quiet and a wonderment. What is this? Mm. Um, so that uh, 
modern architecture or art titillates the senses. Mm. But uh, traditional art moves the heart to contemplation. The inner man was in transition too, if only because, as he says, you cannot practice traditional art without a conviction in the truth of what it's based on. That cannot fail to affect literally your whole life, he said, and it has transformed mine. The core of his Islamic belief and practice is the Sufi tradition. He can laugh at the notion that the West toys with Sufism as a sort of Islam light. In the Mumtaz scheme of things, Sufism is about a profound searching for the truth. The deepest truth, more and more, becomes the unity of all creation and the oneness of all mankind. That is its most important aspect, he says. Love, you'll find, as in most religions, but especially in Islam, it, uh, and beauty. I would um, say that the two distinctive, distinguishing characteristics of Islam, after all, as I say, there is an essential unity of all religions, but there is also an outer formal difference. Uh, the unique thing about Islam is tolerance mm. and beauty. No other religion, to my knowledge, requires as an article of faith to recognize the truth of all religions. Explicitly? Explicitly. In the Quran? In the Quran again and again and again. Do you want to quote it? Surely. It, Amantu billahi wa malaikatihi wa kutubihi wa rusulihi. We believe in Allah and his angels and his books, plural, and his prophets, his messengers, plural. Mm. And the prophets are mentioned by name. And throughout, it is, it's full of this message. Including the Hebrew prophets. Absolutely. And of course, Jesus. Of course. Of the present day in general, Kamal Khan Mumtaz says, with half a laugh, we're all going to hell. We're destroying ourselves. We have the power to blow up the planet and a postmodernist outlook that there is no truth, no right or wrong. He said, combine these and you've got a real killer. Modernism turns up as the villain again when I asked for his capsule understanding of Pakistan today. The extremism in so many dimensions of Pakistani life, he says, is nothing but the flip side of modernity. Pakistan was a modernizing project. The very idea of a nation state is a modern idea. And we were so, see, it begins with the deluge, the overrunning, the you know, just road roller that went over us, that is Western colonialism. Hmm. And we were just knocked out of our senses. What, what hit us? Mm. And, um, and so there is anger in the street. Anger against, of course, the West, which just bulldozed us. And remember, we, the Muslims, identified ourselves as one people. Mm. And we were the superpower. So there is anger against the Western modernizing forces for having replaced us as the dominant power. Mm. Anger against our own brother Muslims for having strayed from the true path. Anger at our state for having lied to us and not delivered what it promised to do. So there are all of these um, angers, rages, which are now finding expression. I was happy to tell Kamil Khan Mumtaz, after two long conversations, that any visitor 
might find in the spaces he created, if not proof of his doctrines, at least a warm, peaceful, comfortable confirmation of his ideas. His house has a certain presence and timelessness, he granted. Those, he said, are the qualities that will strike even the least spiritual of persons, only because the spirit is in all of us. Pakistan's prize entry in the international art scene today is Rashid Rana, born 30 years after Kamal Khan Mumtaz. He thought of being an engineer, trained in Boston as a painter, but on his return to Lahore became a conjurer with digital images. His best-known series is of veiled women, images composed of tiny fragments of Internet pornography, which seems to say these are visions of women, East and West, covered up and overexposed all at once. So Rashid Rana has embraced new technology and conceptual art, and he has been embraced in turn by the global art market, first in India, then London, now New York. When we talked in his studio, Rashid Rana planted some ideas that stuck. His Pakistan is not a repository of tradition. It's not freakish or a world apart either. Look again, he is telling me. Pakistan may, in fact, be a fair sample of the turmoil and transition almost anywhere in the 21st century. Which is to say, we're going through what he is living in Lahore, and he's not so far from our lives in America. The thing about Pakistan is that uh, it is not a country about which you can ask a question and expect one answer. For example, if you're going to say something about women of Pakistan, there's no one answer. There's no one reality here. There's so many times and eras that we uh, coexist over here. But if you must uh, ask my own views about Pakistan, if it is a laboratory for everything, I would say that Pakistan is a mini globe, is a mini world. Whatever exists in the world today, the polarity, the polarization, the, you know, the extremely rich countries and the extremely poor countries and uh, all the differences and all the you know, diversity and variety that exist, that is in a way encapsulated in this place called Pakistan. Mm. It's a mini model, a mini version of the entire globe. When we come back, the novelist Mohsin Hamid of the soon-to-be major motion picture the reluctant fundamentalist, is going to extend Rashid Rana's idea of an unhappy sort of convergence of Pakistan's experience and ours. This is Open Source. I'm Christopher Leiden, and this is Open Source, looking at Pakistan aslant. I came to Pakistan in midsummer 2011 with the thought that when the air of calamity and crisis gets as thick as it has around Pakistan, when the U.S. government is at verbal sword points with the army it created and pays for, when the Pakistani army is at off-and-on war with the jihadis it created, it's not advocates and strategists who will tell you straight what's up, but maybe artists and writers, singers and storytellers could testify about the long term, or at least about their hearts. Three more conversations coming up, but what I'm taking away from all the talk is a picture of a sort of revenge of the 20th century on Pakistan. The oldest, deepest scar is of birth by partition in 1947. 
by bloody vivisection of the old British India, which was a various and almost continental web of people who had never been divided before, much less along religious lines. That partition is a living wound. And then there's been Pakistan's place as an American proxy in the Cold War and the so-called War on Terror. The proud moments in that history don't block out the bitter frustrations of an imbalanced marriage and many humiliations that came with it, crowned by the American swoop on the 9-11 arch-villain Osama bin Laden in Pakistan last spring. Pakistanis ask me, as they'd ask you, what is to be done about a mutually abusive marriage? The novelist Mohsin Hamid, a bestseller in Pakistan, also in the U.S., takes it further. He's extending the old saw that people in a long marriage come to look like each other, even in a bad marriage, like Pakistan's with us. Mohsin Hamid made his own sort of marriage with America and then left it in the aftermath of 9-11. He had made a swift, blue-chip climb up the American establishment ladder. He had degrees from Princeton, then Harvard Law School, big ambitions in New York, until the American trip felt suddenly over. His best-known novel, The Reluctant Fundamentalist, which the Indian director Mira Nair is shooting as a movie, has elements of Mohsin Hamid's story. The narrator in the novel, named Chengez, is on a business trip in the Philippines on September 11, 2001, when he sees television pictures of the Twin Towers in Manhattan going down. And Chengez, maybe the author as well, had found himself smiling. The, you know, the smile uh, that Chingiz has when the Twin Towers go down, or when the first of them goes down, um, is a smile rooted in, in symbolism. Um, you know, somewhere in Chingiz is a resentment towards America. And, uh, and I think it's, it's, for me, I first encountered that smile when I was, um, I, I was in London when September 11th took place. And I just left New York and moved to London a month before. And so somebody said a plane has hit the World Trade Center. And I was in a meeting and a whole bunch of us got up and went to the gym uh, in this office building where there were big TVs in front of the treadmills. And everybody was standing there, you know, watching this. And I, and I you know, being a writer, um, I'm always watching people. And among the, exp- the uh, expressions that I saw were these sort of repressed or half-repressed smiles. And these weren't Pakistanis. I mean, these were people, you know, in London from all sorts of nationalities. Uh, and I think that, that, that this smile comes about because in that moment of September 11th was this idea that this powerful country, the United States, um, you know, had been humbled, humiliated, slapped, paid back. And since so many people around the world either resent U.S. power um, or have been at the receiving end mm. of American, you know, armed uh, interventions. Uh, I think that's a fertile territory for this to take place. But even so, um, one needn't smile. I don't think most people in Pakistan probably did. Um, that smile also requires you in that moment to forget the human loss of life which is taking place. So in other words, to have the smile, you have to, um, you have to see the symbol uh, and ignore the humanity. Both Mohsin Hamid and his creation Chengiz in The Reluctant Fundamentalist had got used to living successfully at the most competitive, most self-esteeming pinnacle of American life. And then they left it without remorse. I wanted to hear Mohsin Hamid's version of what happened to the magic of the American elite. What, what shocks me about America, the way America is headed, is um, that in some ways it's becoming increasingly Pakistan-like in the sense that uh, the American elite is becoming much, much richer compared to the rest of the population. And America's great success, which was this enormous middle that had the bulk of political power, the bulk of economic you know, resources, etc., is being crushed. And you know, this America where there were relatively high tax rates and where um, there was a notion of shared service in the form of military service, for example, um, you know, that's, that's the biggest tax that there is. Um, yet America bore that for decades. And in this time, built up a system of, you know, very good public high schools and primary schools, you know, very good infrastructure and excellent colleges. And, you know, everybody, you could see this sort of evolution um, where, you know, each generation was better off than the previous. And, um, you know, in my time in elite America, 
you know, over the course of the last decade and a half, uh, what I was struck by was how that system was basically collapsing. Um, you know, friends of mine are earning insane amounts of money, those who've stayed in sort of the hedge fund or whatever world. Um, oftentimes it's unclear, you know, what they're actually contributing to society. Uh, and meanwhile, you know, um, the school system is collapsing and, and the American middle class is being eviscerated. And, uh, and all of this is being done, you know, on the back of certain kind of demagogic, you know, uh, uh, you know, calls um, and tribalism. And I think, you know, here in Pakistan, we've seen many of the same sorts of things, um, you know, that, that, that this uh, combination of xenophobia, um, uh, unwillingness to pay taxes, um, uh, comfort with a powerful entrenched elite uh, that, you know, co-ops the democratic process. I mean, that's what we have here, you know, and it, it isn't great. That was Mohsen Hamid in his writing study in a house in Lahore where he lives now with his wife and his daughter. Salima Hashmi is the cheerful embodiment of calm or at least continuity in the artistic life of Lahore and Pakistan. She is the daughter of Pakistan's greatest poet, Fez Ahmed Fez, who would have been 100 years old this year. She also embodies that resilience that you would feel in the air, even if Pakistanis weren't invoking it so urgently and so often. I think you can hear in her voice the pleasure that a lot of Pakistanis take in this life of everyday risk and uncertainty. Here, she is linking the Beacon House Arts University that she founded in Lahore seven years ago and the poetic vision of her father. There's no doubt he was a very iconoclastic man. Uh, I think that he suffered for it. And of course, as his family, we did too. Uh, but on the other hand, he celebrated the fact that it was possible to keep hope alive. And I think that that is what makes him that absolute rebelliousness in the face of injustice or suppression or oppression. It is that which is done with a very, very mild and sweet voice. Um, he was many a time, you know, when there was, especially when he was the first time he went to jail, he was under threat of death sentence. But he would very quietly say and say, no, it will, it will all go away. And I think that the passion was all saved for the poetry. And so the call to arms... Um, the the call to take action, um, the raising the banner, which is always a banner of hope and of love, that was all in the poetry. Consequently, you find, and of course, the uh, his famous poem "Bowl," which is "Speak," which is really to tell people to to just stand up and face. Um, so that that was a poem used by the lawyers' movement. It's used constantly in India by you know, in uh, Shabana Azmi, when she's talking to the slum dwellers in Mumbai, she will quote Fez, she'll sing this poem. She did it when she came to Lahore. There are fishermen in Kerala who will chant this. I mean, mm. wherever there is... The Can you give us the telltale fragment? Um, it is, Bol ke lab azad hain tere, bol ke zabaab tak tere hai. Speak because your lips are free to speak. Speak while, you know, you have a tongue in your mouth. Sort of. And it is that, you know, that before life leaves you, this is your time. Speak up. Salima Hashmi says she doesn't worry so much about extremists in Pakistan because they're a smallish minority voice. She worries about the others who could go silent out of fear. She believes that a discreetly anti-fundamentalist spirit of Fez Ahmed Fez still speaks to most Pakistanis. He was a very, a great believer that it was love that defined mankind. And consequently, um, when all else was lost, the only weapon actually you had uh, was love. Um, and that has come back over and over again. Um, Fez seemed to run counter to the other wind if you like, or that other thing that, okay, it's only in religion that you're going to find identity. I think Fez offered an option, 
that it could be the poet and his message that could be as strong as the idea of using your definition or your identity in terms of something narrow like your religious belief so you know we know that there is no great shangrila which is awaiting us but for fez i think his his message is very clear in the poetry and that is that there is there is only the promise and the promise is that things would would be better one day and you cannot you have to keep the faith and you cannot give up your your space which is the space of love you wear it and you carry it in your heart and you sing of it and that's <laughs> it and it it is there for you to live by Salima Hashmi sent me off with that almost reckless intensity that I've heard young Pakistanis in America say they miss Please take back the message from Pakistan to friends everywhere that um, you know we we live a life which is a hard life but it is still f- full of hope and uh, we are maybe not the people who you see painted and demonized every day in the media we are we're okay we're really okay and we have fun and we make nice paintings and we sing wonderful songs and we make poetry <laughs> thank you there is a myth of pakistan underlying a lot of these conversations underlying a lot of american impressions of pakistan too it originates not in pakistan or in america according to my favorite talker in all of south asia the psychoanalyst of postcolonialism ashish nandi the myth of pakistan he writes originates in india and it dominates india's public life too pakistan he says is what india does not want to be it's both a double and the final rejected self it's the ultimate symbol of irrationality and fanaticism so on the way home from lahore i stopped in new delhi to compare notes with the great man in conversation with ashish nandi this myth of pakistan and the reality and the possibility of pakistan come out very differently i feel at home in pakistan said this poster version of the bengali intellectual i miss only the vibrancy the stridency of the political opinions that are articulated against fundamentalism and the state pakistan is a troubled country ashish nandi is saying but it's not moribund not a failed state and not about to become one i think it will hobble through the present crisis but it will take years perhaps something like two generations to really recover from its present state because the militarization and the dehumanization of the society the brutalization that this generation has seen cannot be easily erased the memories will linger the memories of the killings the memories of the atrocities this will all remain with them for at least two generations that's my suspicion and for those two generations for good or for worse the world will have to bear with pakistan not forgetting that pakistan still produces exceedingly sensitive brilliant writers musicians journalists and even sometimes social workers and political functionaries i only hope that the courage of these dissenting intelligentsia and creative pakistanis can continue to find a place within pakistan and pakistani society benefits from that if i can use a snippet from the study we did we interviewed roughly 1500 people uh, most of them who come from uprooted from pakistan but also included people uprooted within india because of the partition violence one of the most significant larger findings 40% said that either they themselves have been directly helped or they have heard of others being helped by somebody from the other side i defy you to find in any other genocide anywhere else in the world even a vaguely comparable figure there is that part of the story too 
You're trained in treating people who've suffered the way Pakistan has suffered. What's the therapy for nations? I don't know. I'm not probably mm, trained truly for therapy. I was more a uh, psychoanalytic uh, psychologist, or you can call me a psychoanalytically oriented psychologist. I have learned a lot from mm, the old man. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think we have all something to learn from this, that what we saw during the partition was ultimately not only the pathology of rural India and urban India for that matter, but also the forces that can be mobilized for a different kind of effort to fight the violence. Uh, I think my study of partition violence has made me more respectful towards ordinary Indians and Pakistanis. Mm -hmm. And I would in future be more open to the multi-layered selves yeah. of people in this part of the world, perhaps people everywhere. Not a failed state, Ashish Nandi says. Not likely a finished marriage either. But there is a start at a conversation that continues online. All these conversations you just heard and many more are available in extended play on our website. Listeners, please feedback your views, your Pakistan, with a comment at radioopensource.org. Ben Mandelkern was the field producer and editor of This Hour of Pakistan Aslant, also of our podcast series on Another Pakistan. Henry Peck is our associate producer and co-editor. Our podcast and broadcast series are co-productions of the Watson Institute at Brown University and the Asia Society. Zarmine Ansari is our producer in Pakistan. Thanks also to Bina Sarwar of the Aman Ki Asha Peace Initiative at the Jung Media Group. And thank you for listening and joining in. I'm Christopher Leibniz.